Hello and welcome to the Didache podcast, where we draw upon past wisdom to help plant and grow new churches. In this A Sunday with Jesus series, I'll be joined by a range of guests, and together we'll walk through a typical Sunday, from the call to worship through to food after the service. And we're asking, how do these things help us to follow Jesus throughout the week? My hope is that we'll see our gathered worship of Jesus as the heart of our church life together and our discipleship to Jesus. Not just because of what we're doing, but because of what God is doing in these gatherings. As James Smith wrote, Worship is the arena in which God recalibrates our hearts, reforms our desires, and rehabituates our loves. Worship isn't just something we do, it's where God does something to us. Worship is the heart of discipleship, because it's the gym in which God retrains our hearts. Thanks to all those involved in these episodes, thanks to John Smith for the incredible intro music, and to you for listening. I hope this series helps enlarge your vision of Jesus and his church. I'm here again with the Reverend Dr. Paul Blackham, and in this episode we're thinking about a biblical vision for Sundays, for worship, for liturgy. And I want to start in Revelation chapter 4 and pick up on a theme really that we were exploring in the, the last episode. And in Revelation 4 we see John and he's sort of on his own but then he hears a voice, one like a trumpet, who says come up here and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the spirit and there before me was a throne in heaven with someone sitting on it. And the one who sat there had the appearance of Jasper and Ruby, a rainbow that shone like an emerald encircled the throne. Surrounding the throne were 24 other thrones and seated on them were 24 elders. They were dressed in white and had crowns of gold on their heads. And as we read on, we we, we realize that they're in worship before the throne of God in heaven. And isn't that an interesting point? That this, this guy who's on his own, a spirit, and the Lord catch him up into heavenly corporate worship. Uh, Uncle Paul, you, you once said uh, in, in your book, The Great Unknown, or is it The Great Known? <laughs> great book on heaven and, and hell, said a church can be a genuine experience of heaven when the local church is putting on the new humanity of Jesus, saying no to old selfish desires and saying yes to self-sacrifice and serving others. It gives a real glimpse of the kind of life that will go on forever in the renewed creation. When Jesus is at the center of our church, leading us to the Father in praise, prayer and service, we experience what life is really all about, what we were created for. Could you unpack some of that for us? Wow, that's amazing. Uh, I wish I, 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 if I did say that, that's brilliant. Huh? Yeah. Um, <laughs> you did. Yeah. It, so there's, um, first of all, there's like um, in that, there's a general understanding of church as a whole, which is structured and centered on Jesus. Let me just make a point about that. Um, I always want people to get the understanding of church, not really from the New Testament but really from the law of Moses. That's where you get this massive explanation of church and how it functions and structured. And then the New Testament just assumes you've got all that in place. If you're only reading the New Testament, you're not really going to understand church and you're not going to have it structured very well because you just all the way of how to structure church and how it functions and what it is. Really, all of that is done in the Old Testament. And then the New Testament kind of 
just assumes that and speaks about that and around that. So what is important is in that ancient tabernacle, you know, you've got the ancient church laid out in that cross formation, as the book of Numbers tells us. And at the center, you've got this tabernacle, this little model of the, the universe, the heavens and the earth, the cosmos. Now, that's awesome in a sense, because straight away, it means church is centered on a vision of the entire universe and how it works. That tells us something about what it is to live together as church and what is the center. It means, you know, we can't be mucking about with just trivial stuff. Like we're the, at the center is a model of the universe as it was in the law and how what and in, and in that model was the notion of how the universe was created, what's gone wrong with it, how it can be fixed. Where do you belong in it? Where is church in the universe and things like that? And in the in it, there were all these Levites, one of the tribes, the, the Levites. But they were assistants to one person who was the high priest. There was only in the end sort of one priest, one person who was an actual mediator. And that was the high priest, this one person, because no one else could, you know, because if you know, people will know the tabernacle, that it was a building that had these two rooms, an inner room that represents heaven with the Ark of the Covenant and, and with the cherubim angels on either end of it. So it's like a throne surrounded by angels. And if you know, you'll be thinking, oh, but that's like heaven's like that, a throne surrounded by angels. Yeah, right. So that inner room is like that. There's the throne surrounded by angels, heavenly room. And then there's this outer room that's like more to do with like church life in the world. And in there, you've got the table of presence and the lampstand. Lampstand, you'll know because you've just read the Revelation passage that the sevenfold spirit is the spirit of God. That lampstand, it actually tells us that the lampstand is the spirit of God in that passage. And then that table of bread, the presence where the, the bread stacked up and Jesus is the bread of life. So we've got that going on. And but only one person in that model of the universe and the, that symbolic picture of the Trinity at the in the universe and all that, only one person was ever able to go into the inner room, the high priest. So there was one mediator between heaven and earth, the high priest. So why that's so important? And then the high priest, if you remember, had on that on him. He had a breastplate with 12 gems on it that represented church, all the 12 tribes that were gathered. And then he also had two stones, one on each shoulder, with also the, the names of, of the tribes on. So it's like when he went in to the holy room, the inner room, the heavenly room, he was in a way carrying church with him. On his over his heart on his shoulders and I like that idea that it's like over his heart from love on his shoulders because that's how you carry someone who's too weak to carry themselves so I love that idea that the, the high priest is carrying us in we're too weak but he loves us dearly it's a picture of Jesus so that's why it's so important in our in our biblical worship that we're very aware the reason we're connecting into heaven is because of the high priest. Jesus is the great high priest, not in the model 
that was there, the model was to teach us about the whole of the cosmos, the heavens and the earth. And there, the model's teaching there is one mediator, the high priest. Jesus is the high, the, the great cosmic high priest. And so in all our church worship together, it's not us doing something. I said, oh, let's get together and, you know, let's share this, do that, as if it's us. It's like something incredibly sacred and cosmic cosmic that's going on and that's again that sense of the excitement what we're doing when we gather like that is this sense that we gather together and that we're sort of you know lift up your hearts we lift them to the lord we lift them to the lord and he's the one who gives us access into this heavenly reality and literally we can say as we saw at the end of hebrews when we're doing that we come to Mount Zion, the city of God that is in the highest heaven. And one day, of course, we'll come down to earth and we're waiting for that great gathering together of heavens and earth on the day of God. But now that city of God is there in the highest place, Mount Zion, the city of the living God with, you know, millions of angels and the spirits of those made righteous. That is what happens in, in true biblical worship when we gather there's a sense in which like it's all depends on Christ, the high priest. So it is about high priest. It's about sacrifice. It's all that image. You know, it's by the blood of Jesus, you know, uh, that we can confidently draw near to the throne of God. Why? Because he's shed his blood. So church needs to be some people say, oh, I don't like all that priest and sacrifice stuff. That's uh, that's not the way we like to do church. I'm like, well, you haven't got an option. <laughs> that's, that is what church is. It's based on the high priest. It's based on sacrificial blood, opening up the cosmos, enabling us to access the throne of God and the heavens. And anything less than accessing the heavenly throne room with angels and archangels and all the company of heaven. Church of England, we say that, don't they? Now, therefore... With angels and archangels and with all the company of heaven, we lord and magnify your holy name forevermore, praising you and saying, holy, holy, holy. That's, that is, that's what it is. That's what gathered, gathered worship is about. And so you so helpfully read that bit in Revelation. This is on the issue of liturgy because <clears throat> they have liturgy going on there in Revelation 4. The four living creatures, you know, the supreme uh, angelic beings with the many faces and all this jungle, um, the there, and they, they do not rest day or night saying, holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. And then we know that that's liturgical because in Isaiah 6, when um, the, the, in the year that King Isaiah died, I saw the Lord seated on a throne high and lifted up and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above it stood seraphim, each had six wings and, you know, so on. And they were crying to one another, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. It's the same basic liturgy. And that was like 600 BC. And now it's like whatever, you know, 650, 700 years later. And they're still at it. The same liturgy. They haven't changed the liturgy basically at all. Those supreme angels that minister at the throne have a fixed liturgy that they constantly address to one another for hundreds of years. And if we were now, you and I, Sam, were able right now to see into the highest heaven, 
I'm they be still doing it. The exact same liturgy be going on. And then in Revelation, then they go in, they have another one. When 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 the living creatures do this and begin this liturgical format, the 24 elders fall down, throw down their thrones, and then they have a liturgical thing. You are worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things and by your will the existence were created. So there's like a liturgy that kicks off with the living creatures, the elders get in on it. And then if you follow it all through to the end of chapter five, there's different liturgical responses and different members of the heavenly hosts get involved. And then if you notice in chapter five and verse eight, the, the four living creatures and 24 elders, they get these golden bowls of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. So it's the wider church's prayers are brought into this amazing liturgical act. Like the, all Christians, presumably living and dead, all the prayers that are going on consistently, the saints are still praying in the heavens. We see that going in Revelation plus the church on earth, militant, that are getting caught up, were like represented in these bowls of incense. And then they get into a song, you are worthy to take the scroll and open it says, and then worthy is the lamb, worthy is the lamb, and all this sort of thing, who was slain. And then off they go, and it ends with blessing and honor, glory and power, be to him who sits on the throne to lamb forever. The four living creatures said, amen, 24 elders fell down and worshiped him who lives forever and ever. They're so exhausted after all the, they're like, oh, and they just worship. But it's like a completely clear liturgical arrangement. And and it's, and it's and we see it in Isaiah 6, we see it in Daniel, we see it through the Psalms, we see it in the book of the law, where every time the tabernacle was picked, the Ark of the Covenant was picked up, Moses had a liturgical response. Every time it was put down, liturgical response. It's all the way through. So in other words, the Bible teaches us about liturgical responses. We should adopt them. And two, it shows how much thought is goes into it. It's not as if like, oh, I don't know, like, why don't we just do, I don't know, let's, let's just do whatever we want. No, there is a place for informally just meeting together in each other's homes. It's in Acts 2, it's in Acts 1. You just meet up, you're eating food, you're sharing prayers, you're sharing scriptures, and someone's got a little message, someone's got a thought. That's perfectly, that's good. We should be doing that. We should be meeting up with church together in our homes every day. But when we formally assemble, as it is in the Bible, there's a hierarchy to it, a structure to it. There's a because it's serious. We're do we're in, we're caught up, and if the worship, the, if the church worship, we get we're joining in with is so careful, so liturgically organized. We want to replicate that, and that's very strong. There's a tradition that goes back. The in the Orthodox Church, they use the liturgy of Saint James. Because, they say, James was given one of these visions to watch the whole of worship going on in the highest heaven. And he wrote it down, and they believe that the liturgy of St. James is basically that heavenly worship that they wrote down, the liturgy that he recorded, having witnessed it in heaven. And so the divine liturgy that Chrysostom does is like a variation and development of that. But they do believe... I'm not going to comment right or wrong, but I love the thought that they believe that they are you when they do their liturgy, the Orthodox, the divine, that's why it's the divine liturgy. This isn't a human liturgy, it's divine liturgy. They are literally just doing it word for word as they they so and then to me, 
I love the attitude. It, that, that's how serious it is. And that sense of connecting. So it, it tells us a lot about what it is to gather for biblical worship and how much, why singing is. Anyway, listen, I've said, I've said too much. Oh, I love that all so much. So because church is gathering around Jesus uh, to receive and to learn life from him, to learn how to lay our lives down for one another, love one another, understand that the universe, like him, the logos of all creation, that's why we want to be about liturgical worship. And primarily, and I want to pick up on this, uh, or really a key part of that is the word being preached and the sacraments administered. In, I, I think it's become common to hear about churches stripping back on elements of traditional worship and liturgy. I think sometimes in an attempt to be attractive and relevant and edgy, uh, I think of so-called emergent churches years ago where sermons were replaced with conversations and communion was replaced with coffee and croissants. Is it cutting edge to cut out the vast majority of liturgy? Uh, it's it's so boring and uh, worn out. It's a thing that people try from time to time. They've always tried that sort of thing, you know, sectarianism and things to say, no, no, we, uh, it's better if we, and the, 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 the desire, positively speaking, is to have something that's kind of spontaneous and alive to the needs and the feelings of the moment. And I'm saying, I feel, I can understand that, and, but to me, that's that kind of dynamic where it's, you're much more expressive, giving room for discussion, conversation, sharing, like, that's those more informal meetings where you'll have 10 people or something and meeting together and you're sharing a life in that way. The problem, the big, one of the biggest problems is it's just too demanding on you attending. If you, if it's all got to be invented at the time, uh, because we come and we need to be, to receive the life of God together. And church, we want it to be a place where I always think it's like that's where we learn to be human. And where we, when we come to these gatherings and assemblies, we should be coming with intense vulnerability, ready to expose the deepest aspects of ourselves and, and, and be honest about the mess we're in and everything like that. For that to happen, you can't be entering a an unknown, unstructured environment. Uh, you, you need to be coming into something where you know how this works and how you confess sins and how, how it works. Because you, it, it's, if, it, if it requires of you, like you've got to come up with your own words and own ways to do it. It's too hard. I find particularly now people are depressed, worn down, overwhelmed, and liturgy does, hold, like carries you. It's there to say, listen, this is a great way of saying this. 
It takes so much weight off our shoulders to do that. And that's why I like when G the disciples say to Jesus, how should we pray? And one occasion he says, pray like this. And then he gives them the Lord's Prayer. So he's invited them to use this as a kind of basic template, but they can develop it as they wish. But then the other time he says, when you pray, say this, not like this, just say this. And that's important because I find myself so often I'm too tired or overwhelmed or guilty or weary or whatever. And I know I only have to say this. I don't have to. And I, the, the, the freedom of just being able to say it and know this is a great prayer that God himself, who's on the other end of the telephone line, he, like, he says, this is a good one. Just say this. So what liturgy does, it provides a structure for us because we're weak, we're vulnerable. We should be very vulnerable when we gather in that way. We want our guards to be down. And it's providing a structure that enables us to be like that, to be really open and honest in the presence of God and with each other. And that's a thing that people often forget, that when they go for this kind of different environment, it, I find it doesn't produce the result that they're after. And it can become, because they're not thinking so hard about the structure and the liturgy, it becomes actually boringly uh, predictable in a bad way. Like, instead of having amazing words. See, I love it as a kid, I can remember saying things and singing things in church that I didn't understand. But I love the thought, here are things that are be out, um, beyond my depth. And I want to be able to grow up into that. I didn't want something that was so low and common denominator that there was nothing to inspire me and lift me. So I do think it's important that when people do that thing and they strip it all out and make it like, you know, a coffee shop environment or something and say, oh, we got, oh, and as you said, the sacraments point. Again, what's so important, like what that is, is... Well, Jesus just said, look, this is me. And he held up this piece of bread and this cup of wine. He says, this is me. And I am going to be ripped apart for you. And I want you, whenever you do this, uh, be, remember me, remember what I've done. And the scriptures actually say that when we do that, we have fellowship with him. We eat his flesh, drink his blood. That's the, the words that are used. It's the intensity of this thing. So if we say, well, it's the same as having coffee and croissants, or it's the same, and I'm like, nah, you see, what you're doing now is you are believing that you can substitute what he has given to us for something that you're like, well, it's what's important is we're connecting with each other. And I'm like, no, Holy Communion does involve us connecting with each other. But the communion that we're really seeking, that we crave, is communion with him, with Christ. And to dare, you know, Nadab and Abihu were these dudes in the Old Testament who were given instructions of how to serve at the center of church with doing the business. 
they did it wrong. We're not even sure what they've done wrong, but it was partly, I think, their attitude as well. Because, you know, Aaron said, you know, sometimes I've made mistakes. And Moses like, yeah, but it's it's the attitude. They had an attitude that it, they could do what they wanted. And, it's, and God killed them, burned them alive because of it. And in Korah, there's another rebellion that comes up in the law where they said, well, we all have the spirit. We can all connect to God as we wish. We don't need all this church hierarchy and structure. We all have the spirit. We can just connect to God individually as we wish. And then it's interesting. The Lord says, oh, OK, right. Let's say you bring your incense burners. You come and do what you want. You worship in your own way, according to your own ideas. Let's see how it goes. And then the earth opens up and swallows them and they're burned and plague. And it's like the Lord is furious at the idea that you, we can worship him as we wish, as we wish. No, it's not as we wish. It's called a service of worship because and liturgy just means service because we are primarily serving him to worship him in the way that he has described. And it matters that we're very almost frightened of, of doing something like innovative. We want worship in a way to be amazingly not innovative so that even if a person from a thousand years came into our worship service, they should be like, Oh, yeah, I, I feel totally at home. I know what it is. That would be awesome. Or, you know, the, the sense that we're with fear and trembling about it. We're serving one another. Yeah, but most importantly, we're serving this living God. And that attitude of being super careful, super careful about how we do worship, uh, it matters. It really matters. remember you saying to me a while back something like yeah there's enough chaos out there in the world we don't need our services to be chaotic as well and I think that's one of the real benefits of having a structured liturgy but I think the glorious thing is that we can bring our chaos the chaos of our lives to the Lord Jesus the word the light the life of God and have him deal with that and I'm thinking back to Genesis 1 where you have the 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 uh, the, the the tohu and the bohu uh, you know, the, the world was without uh, form and, and void and darkness was over the surface of the deep. And, and what's the answer to that? Well, the, the, the father speaking his his word and uh, bringing forth his light. And obviously, John one picks up on that. Uh, There's a as, lovely. Uh, Jesus. Oh, 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 sorry. I was After only going to say um, that sense of bringing all of life and the chaos of life but doing it exactly the way he's instructed. Mm -hmm. And sometimes, you know, like to, to be, I love, even when a church, I think, there are some churches that get so intense about not doing anything other than what the Bible has instructed and end up having like the, the and I kind of like, even if I sometimes think they go a bit too far, I like the attitude of, I, we want to be super careful to do our worship exactly the way he's commanded us to do it. Because one of the inspiring things is it, in the book of Exodus, he gives all these instructions for making the tabernacle and how to set up church, basically. This is how you're going to do church for, well, it was basically for the next 1,500 years. He's like saying, this is, here's the church, here's how you set up church. 
And then he tells them how to do it. And then we get it all again when they actually set it up, when they're doing what he told them. We get all the instructions and information again on how they set the church. As if he's like, I really take this seriously. Set it up exactly the way I've told you to do it. But when they do it and set up church exactly the way he wanted them to do it, um, this is what it, yeah, that's it. It, it says, um, so he did it. And then it says, so he raised up the court and all the tabernacle on the altar and hung up the screen of the court. So Moses finished the work. He set up churches according to the churches. Then the cloud covered the tabernacle of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses wasn't even able to enter the tabernacle of meeting because the cloud rested upon it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And whenever they moved or traveled, you know, this glory went with them. So to me, the, uh, the climactic conclusion to the book of Exodus is do church the way he's told us to do it and the glory of the Lord will fill you and travel with you. That matters. It really does. And I'm just looking at 1 Corinthians 14, because obviously in 1 Corinthians, it's a book on, on church and how church is done and Paul's spelling it all out. Is that a great verse? Chapter 1 Corinthians 14, verse 25. Like if we do church in, in the way the Lord wants, then actually people might come in uh, to our worship and exclaim, God is really among you. And that's what we want, don't we, in our church gatherings for God the living God, Jesus, to be among us at work, driving out, pushing back uh, the chaos, the darkness in our in our lives and uh, filling us with his word, his light, his life. And so that's why we want to be uh, liturgical in our worship. But good liturgy, what uh, what Jesus wants us to do. And obviously the, the word preached and the sacraments administered are going to be key to that, because, again, that's. The word of God, Jesus, is a, it's about him speaking to us. The sacraments are his body and his blood offered, offered to us. And just as we finish, Uncle Paul, perhaps sometimes we, maybe we overthink that worship is, or maybe think too much that, that worship is about what we're offering to God. And there is an element of that, isn't there? But would you say that we need to think a bit more about actually what God's doing to us in worship? So there, there, there is this interaction between between the Lord and us as people. Yeah, that is so important. And it's all this kind of seriousness again, because I think the problem with making, if, if because I've been involved in this sort of church planting, fresh expression, all these kind of things for nearly 20 years. This see, And one of the motivations that sometimes I've heard is we want to make it very accessible to people who never have been to church. I'm like, it's a worthy thought, but it may not be the right one because coming to a gathering of church isn't something like anything they've ever done before. It is something that should be like that sense that we that verse the secrets of our hearts are revealed and falling down on his face will worship god and report god is truly among you in 1 corinthians 14 25 so the person will all the secrets of their heart are going to be revealed they'll fall down onto their face and say truly god is among you so it isn't just something like oh do you want to meet for a coffee 
Church shouldn't feel like meeting someone for a coffee. It should feel like something that is genuinely quite terrifying, something that may lead all the secrets of your heart to be exposed to in, in church and that you are flat on your face, flat on your face with the, the you know, mysterium tremendum of what is happening. And that when people encounter the living God or he encounters us, which is what? All these scriptures, and we thought about them in the Psalms, God dwells in the praises of his people. He'll draw near to the people in their praises and all this sort of thing. When the Lord God draws near his encounters, think about it in the Bible. When the Lord visits people, never, they never are, go, oh, I think I'll just sit in my sofa with a cup of tea while God arrives. Nobody has a, no one's comfortable and relaxed when God arrives. Nobody, nobody. Uh, Isaiah, Moses, John, Daniel, all of them, they, they nearly all think they're going to die. I, I, that's the normal reaction to God arriving. I'm going to die. I'm going to die. And then he's like, don't be afraid. The first thing he has to say is, don't be afraid, because you're, everyone always is. Because God rolling up is a shaking. It's a shaking of everything about us, the secrets of our hearts revealed and everything. So when we, so in church, well, that's part of the excitement when we're like, oh, go to church, anything can happen. I mean, God might really show up. And then you're like excited, but also terrified, because if he really shows up, you aren't going to be comfortable. You're going to be a massively dis, uh, discombobulated sort of thing. And you know, you you could you could you could be flat on your face. And I read these incidents in church history sometimes where God shows up big time, and always that sort of thing still happens. That people are thrown to the ground or clutching onto the building in terror, terror, because to meet God is terrifying. When he's like that. So when he comes and he, it's up to him how he deals with us and arrives. And sometimes he comes and he comforts us and things. But it's never something just easy, accessible. It's always profound, disruptive, uh, unnerving. And it turns us upside down and throws us to the ground or whatever. So the goal is not to make it super accessible. The goal is to, you know, in that in that sense, it's good that it's comprehensible. That's what 1 Corinthians 14 is saying, that it's something that a person could understand. It's, it's, it makes sense what's going on, but it doesn't have to be like down. It should be something that is like, oh, my goodness, what's this? And I think that's more important than ever in our age, because people like we've lived at a time of massive deconstruction of society, of identity, of roots. And people feel they have no roots, they have no foundations, everything's been deconstructed. The acids of modernity have gone right down into the, into the foundations. And that sense that there is nothing to stand on anymore, everything is gone. Gender, identity, everything, everything, nations, the sense of the, the, the deconstruction has reached kind of um, a, 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 a total conclusion, in a sense. And it's not good enough for us to go, he, I'll come along and just see the way we like to do things. That isn't good enough anymore if we're saying what we're about 
is the history of the universe, the cosmos, the very nature of reality. It, what people want, I find more and more in church, particularly, and with the church planting I've done is so often with very unchurched people, they want to feel that this is something with substance and something that connects them to the past, something that you haven't just thought up on, on Saturday night, but something that's like this, this, the feeling that we're connected into something that's been around for thousands of years and that we're saying the same sorts of things that people have been saying for thousands of years. And we're generally kind of in on, on a connected into something that goes back to the beginning of the world and reaches up into the highest heaven. And that we're part of something that isn't like, I've only, yeah, this is just how we like to do it. It's like, it doesn't even matter whether we like to do it or not. This is how church has basically been happening for thousands of years all over the world and in the highest heaven. So I do think it is actually more important to convey something of that with creeds, biblical prayers, ancient prayers, ancient forms of worship, all these kind of things to help people realize we haven't just thought this up, or as Peter puts it, this isn't cleverly devised fables that we've come up with. This stuff's go, you know, this is historic, ancient, primal, primal, this stuff. And people crave that. They crave something with foundations. Um, and that I find that's more important. I thought that 10 years ago. Now I find it's even more important than I used to think. Wonderful. So we're saying liturgy matters for life. I remember speaking, and just as we end, to a, a lady who was uh, British, but she was a missionary out in the Middle East. And she did a lot of work with Muslims who'd become Christians and lost everything, lost their families, their homes, their jobs. And she once said to me, like, given the choice between spontaneity or structure in church, uh, these guys would always gravitate towards structure. And I think we can, there are, there are obvious reasons for that, but we might want to think that through. And so if we're listening to this as church leaders, we are to think deeply and prayerfully with our whole Bible open as we consider uh, the liturgy of our, of our church. If we're church members, we can ask our church leaders about our liturgy and ask that to be uh, explained. Because liturgy is about training us to belong live and think like Jesus, with Jesus, the way that Jesus chooses. So I hope this has been helpful. Thanks so much, Uncle Paul, for sharing all those thoughts. And uh, we'll hopefully see you again in another episode of A Sunday with Jesus.